We start today's episode with a quick editor's note. Today's interview guest is Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina, and we spoke to him last week, the day before news broke that federal investigators were raiding the homes of an Albuquerque police officer and later a criminal defense attorney. Also unfolding, Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman announced last week that his office has dropped more than 150 pending DWI cases. He called it a gut punch and said that his prosecutorial ethics require him to dismiss the cases, but Bregman and his office haven't said exactly why those cases were dropped. The DA did say, though, quote, it was in deference to a federal investigation. Many of the cases that were dropped surround a small group of specific APD officers who are listed as the primary arresting officer for the case. News 13 has learned that that federal investigation surrounds accusations of officers being paid to get DWI cases dismissed. As of this recording, that story is still unfolding. We're not naming the officers or attorneys that are connected to this federal investigation yet because no criminal charges have been filed. APD released a statement about the federal investigation last week saying, quote, APD has been working with the FBI for the past several months on an investigation involving members of the department. Due to the sensitive nature of the investigation, some officers have been placed on administrative leave and others will be temporarily reassigned within the department. APD leadership is working closely with the FBI to ensure a complete and thorough investigation can be completed, end quote. So beyond that statement, we're still waiting to hear more about what federal investigators are looking into exactly, and we did not get a chance to ask questions about that of Chief Medina in the interview you're about to hear, because again, this all took place before we knew about the federal investigation. But today's topic is still timely as we're approaching a decade since APD started working on the reform efforts under a settlement agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice. So without further ado, here is our interview with Chief Medina. Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Gabby, today's topic goes back to our first couple years reporting here in Albuquerque. Back at the time around 2013 and 2014, and I know you started with the station in 2011 in Roswell, you were a Bureau reporter, but getting to Albuquerque for both of us in 2013-14, you remember we were covering a lot of stories about the conflict between the community and the police department. Essentially, the center point was the concerns that a lot of people had about how Albuquerque police was doing its job policing in the community. And I wanted to ask you, what do you remember of that time, 2013-14? I remember, I mean, obviously the one big event that sticks out in my mind that you and I both covered extensively was the James Boyd shooting in 2014. And I feel like the reason that sticks out is because it was just, you know, we had a news conference with APD, we learned about, and this was a homeless camper in the foothills, just a quick nuts and bolts We learned about the shooting from Albuquerque police, and then we went back and did more coverage about it. Then there was questions about, well, should this, was this a good shoot? There were protests. And it was just, I remember the coverage felt tense between the community and the police at the time. Also, just in general, I feel like maybe we got fewer news releases from APD back then, and not everything was on Twitter like it is now. Just the communication wasn't... I think nearly as much as it is now. Yeah, there was 
definitely a difference. Some of it was technological, I feel like, but yeah, I think there was a difference in terms of the interface between the media and the police department at the time too. And I was going to say, I remember the mood or what you could say was the tone around a lot of news conferences at the time, you know, and many of those ended up being about officer involved shootings when they happened, those news conferences almost felt kind of defensive in a, in a way. Um, I remember a lot of situations where reporters would be peppering the chief at the time. Um, there were a couple of chiefs at the time, whether it was Ray Schultz or uh, Alan Banks Gordon Eden. as well, Gordon Eden, peppering with the questions if there was body camera video or if the suspect was armed with a weapon. And oftentimes there weren't entirely answers to those questions. And again, now this was about 10 years ago when all of this was happening. And broadly speaking, 10 years ago, APD was facing, you know, a large amount of criticism about police shootings. In late 2012, when the DOJ began its investigation, the department reported more than two dozen shootings dating back from 2010 to 2012. 17 of those shootings were deadly, and those included multiple cases where suspects were not armed with a weapon, they were shot and killed, or shootings involving suspects with mental illness. So it was certainly a different era for Albuquerque police and one that we know was about to be redefined by the U.S. Department of Justice. In April 2014, after over a year of investigation into APD's patterns or practices, the DOJ's Civil Rights Division released something called the Findings Letter. The public release of that letter came in a packed news conference alongside top brass in the police department, top city officials, community group, leaders, reporters, and a lot more. We have determined that there is reasonable cause to believe that the Albuquerque Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force, including the use of unreasonable deadly force. This conduct violates the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which is a powerful civil rights law that has allowed us to reform troubled police departments across the country. So then acting assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division, that was Jocelyn Samuels announcing what would be the beginning of a years-long effort for Albuquerque police to reform under the watch of the Department of Justice, a court-appointed monitor, and a federal judge. Chief Gordon Eden was a police chief at the time when APD eventually signed a settlement agreement in late 2014. It's a legally binding court document outlining more than 270 different matters within the police department that APD needed to overhaul, including creating new policies, eliminating certain practices, and a lot more. And with that agreement, APD also needed to prove that it was doing what it said. And the process of proving that they're in compliance continues today, nearly a decade after the department formally signed that letter. Now, here in 2024, APD is very close to meeting its goals for a reformed police department by DOJ's standards. And that brings us up into today's conversation. So joining us here in the KRQE studio is returning guest, Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina, here to talk about the process, where we've been, what's changed, and what's still ahead. Chief Medina, thanks so much for being here. Thank you guys for having me this morning, and thanks for bringing awareness to this topic. I think it's of utmost importance to the community to understand where we've been, why we were there, and where we're trying to get to and what we're trying to accomplish. First, Chief, can you give us the aerial view of where Albuquerque Police Department is today in terms of reform and the settlement agreement as we speak? You know, the Albuquerque Police Department has taken huge steps in the past three years in the reform process. I still remember my first court hearing as chief had to do with the reporting period where I wasn't chief and we were under a lot of scrutiny. 
there was a lack of accountability according to the monitor. And I still remember the exact words of his somewhere to the effect of, this is the worst department I've ever had to monitor. And you know, it, it stung to hear those things. I knew I had just helped negotiate EFIT, which was going to help us with our use of force investigations. And I knew that we were on the brinks of receivership and the Department of Justice taking over our internal affairs investigations and us losing control of part of the department. Yeah, a really dire situation when you consider it. And I think we'll get a little bit more into some of those elements as we go on here. I do want to rewind a bit just to start with the reform process and where that began. There's a lot of history of how APD got to that point, and certainly a lot more to dig into when you consider the dozens of cases that happened before the DOJ arrived. But I wanted to ask you broadly, Chief Medina, what were you doing positionally with APD when the DOJ began its investigation? This was in December 2012. What was your impression as well of why the DOJ was investigating? We already knew that the DOJ was going to investigate us. We had had a study done by PERF, and the department and its leadership was trying to do everything to reform itself and to lessen the impact of DOJ's investigation. In July of 2011, I was promoted to the rank of commander, and I remember I was pulled into Chief Schultz's office, and he told me, we're going to promote you to the rank of commander. And I thought I was going to either end up in an area command or in property crimes. I had been very successful in property crimes since 2009. We had rolled out the bait car programs. And Chief Schultz told me, I'm transferring you to the tactical section because you have an ability to think outside the box. You think of things at a different level. And we know that we're going to have problems with tactical when it comes to this investigation with DOJ. And we're hoping that you could start implementing some changes that are there that are going to help us. So in 2012, even going back to 11, there's already a lot of concern that uh, the DOJ was going to be investigating us and that we were going to end up under a consent decree and that it had to do with our use of force. When the Civil Rights Division with the DOJ came back with its findings, this was again in April of 2014, you weren't the police chief at the time, as we noted, but you worked with APD. And as I understand, were you thinking about retirement at that time? And what were you doing when the DOJ Civil Rights Division announced its findings in April of 2014? I was just hitting or getting close to my 20-year mark. In 2014, I was the Southwest Area Commander. And for me, that was the peak of my career placement in my first round at the Albuquerque Police Department. I had worked up through the ranks. I was a patrol officer, a sergeant, a lieutenant, and a commander in the Southwest. So I loved the Southwest part of the city. I had strong community ties to the southwest part of the city. And matter of fact, the only place me and my wife ate out on weekends was within my area command so I could visit the different businesses. And at that point in time, I was being notified that property crimes were on the rise and they knew of my success in the past and they were going to transfer me back to property crimes. It wasn't a choice of mine whether I wanted to go or not. And at that moment, I had made the that and a couple of other things that had occurred, I'd made the decision that I was going to retire. I just also didn't believe in the direction the police department was going for a variety of reasons. Everywhere from our training to the way we were conducting ourselves in the community. And you mentioned it earlier, the stress between the community and the police department was already very evident in a lot of different places. So 
I was in the process of uh, interviewing and had been involved in processes in other parts of the country. And it all came together in August of that year. I got offered a job at the Pueblo of Laguna and it made more sense financially because I'd get my retirement. We knew the cost of living everywhere else was through the roof. And here we'd be able to stay in our own home and basically just add a paycheck. And we'd still be in the metro area for family. So in October of 2014, I retired from the Albuquerque Police Department and started at the Pueblo of Laguna. Just for context, you did come back to obviously you're back now, but when did you come back? October of 2017. I happened to be elk hunting and I got a phone call from our previous chief, Mike Geyer, that asked me, he's like, do you want to go back to Albuquerque if Mayor Keller wins? And initially I said no. I knew Albuquerque was a mess. I looked and I had taken so much pride myself and Commander Vega or Acting Deputy Chief Vega. He was the auto theft sergeant for me back in the auto theft days. It was the first time we were out of the top 10 back in 2011 timeframe. Uh, we had brought the bait car programs. We had a lot of success fighting auto theft and property crimes were down. And I looked at the crime numbers and I'm like, that department has just gone the complete opposite direction of where we were. And I initially said no uh, because I also knew personalities and I knew that one of the keys to the DOJ process was going to be holding officers accountable. And I knew that if everybody wasn't committed to making the tough decisions and holding people accountable, no matter what process or policy they passed, you'd never pass the scrutiny of the monitors. So initially I said, you know, probably not. I'm happy out here and I have a good job. I have two incomes and a little bit of time passed and we had another discussion and before I knew it, I spoke to the mayor and I made the decision that uh, if he won, I would come back to the Albuquerque Police Department. And I still remember it was a Monday night. All the Baltimore Ravens were playing the Houston Texans and I was all ready for the evening of football. And I got a phone call that uh, we were all meeting at uh, a restaurant. And the next day they made the announcement that I would be returning to the Albuquerque Police Department as the deputy chief of the field. Okay. And that was 2017, correct? December of 2017. Got it. Okay. So going back in time just a little bit again, I want to cite some evidence that the DOJ stated in 2014. From its finding letter, it said, Albuquerque police officers too often use deadly force in an unconstitutional manner in their use of firearms. To illustrate, of the 20 officer-involved shootings resulting in fatalities from 2009 to 2012, we concluded that a majority of these shootings were unconstitutional. So you've since become the police chief and had a chance to really get involved with the reform work. Probably reread that report as well. Do you agree with those findings way back when the DOJ released them in 2014? You know, I want to first state that without a doubt, the Albuquerque Police Department had to reform. And this doesn't go back to 2014, 2012. This goes back to the first day that Harold Medina walked into the doors of the Albuquerque Police Academy in 1995. On that first day of my academy training, they bragged to us about the great shots that we were at the Albuquerque Police Department. How nationally, so many out of, like, what percentage of shootings officers actually hit somebody, and when it happens in Albuquerque, how much better we are. And how much better we are at fatal shootings. So that culture began year, decades ago. It just is something that didn't grow up and pop up in 2009, 2010. So without a doubt, the Albuquerque Police Department had to be reformed. The DOJ report had a lot of accurate information, but it had a lot of inaccuracies. 
And as soon as we got the report, I pointed out all the inaccuracies. That type of person I was, I was a senior commander. I had a voice. And I still remember when the mayor's office at the time walked in, I said, there's a lot of inaccuracies. I already marked them. And they said, you guys are all going to shut up and we're just going to take this. Mm. And the decision made that we would not argue any of the improper statements that were made in there and that uh, we would just take the reports as it is. So I value the report in that it did identify a problem, but it was sloppy work. And there were a lot of things that were inaccurate in the report. And still to this day, if the Department of Justice or anybody would like, I'll sit down with them and I'll point out the inaccuracies from 2014 because I still remember them. And we should note that report is, I think, 46 pages. That findings letter is 46 pages. It outlines statements, evidence, a lot of background. But to your point, there's a lot more there. And there was obviously room for disagreement. I recall that the mayor, we asked him in news conferences about some of the things that the city disagreed with. And it was very clear that Mayor Richard Berry at the time was was ready to just move forward with the process and he was not going to sort of litigate the things that there were disagreement about because obviously when you begin litigating, it can become a very long argument. It seemed there was a calculus that something needs to happen. We're sort of up against the wall and we're just going to move forward. Mayor, it makes it uh, pretty clear in the second paragraph of this that the city does have some disagreements when it comes to the DOJ's findings letter. What specific disagreements are, are do you guys have? You know, we made a very, we made a very um, direct, apparently um, we should have put this, we made, a, we made a decision very early on in this process that we were going to take the findings letter and not spend a lot of time agreeing or disagreeing it from a legal standpoint. Um, the point is, we took that findings letter on April 10th. We pivoted into a solution mode. One shooting that was alluded to in the report that happened right around the time just before the release of this findings letter came weeks before. This was in all likelihood, really APD's most significant officer involved shooting of the last couple decades. That being the fatal shooting of James Boyd, who was, as Gabby mentioned, a homeless camper in the foothills. Boyd was shot to death by two APD officers after an hours long standoff where he was armed with two knives. He was illegally camping in an open space area and the officers from the beginning were just seeking to remove him. It ended in this fatal shooting. It eventually led to murder charges being filed against the two officers who shot those being Keith Sandy and Dominique Perez. Both officers were eventually tried in court in a very long trial they were acquitted of charges after a jury deadlocked on a decision, and there was no push to retry that case, which was being tried by a special prosecutor. And the DOJ in part said in its findings letter, quote, we are aware that the release of our findings occur at a time of transition for the department's leadership and amid continued tension around recent officer-involved shootings. So, Chief, how much of a factor do you think that the James Boyd shooting was in the reform process? I remember the conversations with DOJ and I remember a conversation where somebody stated that the fact that the chief of police themselves had tried to justify this shooting showed that this was a systemic problem that was from the lowest ranks of the department to the highest ranks of the department. Uh, They felt there was no choice but to come in 
and make changes. This video and APD's comments on it have sparked major backlash from the public and politicians. It shows the deadly shooting more than a week ago of James Boyd, a homeless camper with a knife in the foothills as he appears to turn away. Do you believe this was a justified shooting? Do I believe it was a justified shooting? Yes, if you follow case law Garner versus Tennessee, there was a directed threat to an officer. Mayor R.J. Berry says Albuquerque Police Chief Gordon Eden spoke too soon last Friday. I think Chief made a mistake when, you know, when he's at the press conference and, and he you know, was asked an honest question about what he thought was a justified or not. I think he gave an honest response, but I think that was a mistake. Tonight, the chief agrees. The mayor's correct. Um, the mayor and I talked yesterday and uh, I told him yesterday when we were talking that um, I thought my comments were very uh, premature. Eden says the question caught him off guard and his answer was based on information he had just heard in a briefing that hadn't been released to the public. What I know is information that I have been told by the investigators. And um, that's one of those things that we need to go out and verify and verify and verify. But even looking back on the James Boyne shooting, I still remember it very vividly. I was actually on my way home from the Mountain West basketball tournament in Las Vegas and I had stopped for gas in Gallup, New Mexico. And my phone rang and it was my former sergeant of mine from the tactical section that said, Commander, are you aware that open space units are in the foothills with the camper and they haven't made it a SWAT call out? And he kind of told me some of the specifics. And I recall that I just saw how we were making mistakes because we were trying to make changes without really thinking them through. And about a month earlier, I had asked for a SWAT call out and I was told, no, we're going to have detectives follow the person and try to take him into custody. When our policy clearly stated use tactical, that was the same thing that was occurring with James Boyd. And I called the deputy chief and I said, hey, my open space guys are out there. Foothills is taking over the call. My guys are out, but this should be a SWAT call out. He immediately hung up and was trying to make it into a SWAT call out. Dominic Perez had got there prior to the arrival of the rest of the SWAT team, but they had made shift like a response that included detectives and canine. And I still remember the sergeant calling me back and saying, shots have been fired and the subject is down. And the next day when I heard the details, I knew we would never be the same. And I think that a lot of things could have happened in the course of the next few days that could have hopefully made things a little less more impactful. But I just think that was the straw that finally broke the camel's back and that it was inevitable that we were going to be under a well-deserved settlement agreement and that we were going to have to change. And we should note as well, the, the weeks that followed, you saw that community pressure really heighten. There was a city council meeting where community members took over. Literally, you know, the bench of city council, they were shouting down. The councilors trying to run the meeting. The meeting got canceled. There were protests, nights of protests where officers were in riot gear using tear gas and whatnot to, to disperse crowds. It, it was a, a huge moment in this community, one that made national news as well. And this all happened again right before the release of this findings letter. Let's talk a little bit about how the reform process now works. Basically, for those who don't understand what it means, because I think people probably have heard a bunch of news stories. Sometimes it is a little hard to go back and do all your Google research of like, how did we get here? What exactly does it mean when they're when the police department says it's reforming? So you've got paragraphs full of changes that must be made. The DOJ and the independent monitor, which is a guy named James Ginger, they track these changes. 
and publish findings in reports. What else has this reform process entailed? How do you sort of sum it up for people? You know, the best way to sum it up is it has three parts. The development of a policy on what's currently 255 paragraphs that the Albuquerque Police Department is responsible for. And I'm happy to say that we've met the requirements of 252. There's only three paragraphs that APD is responsible for left that are out of compliance. But you first develop a policy and then the monitor and the Department of Justice approve the policy. Then you develop a training for that policy. Everybody once again approves that training. And then you have to show that the policy is actually being followed, implemented, and that the spirit of it in every sense is become standard practice for the Albuquerque Police Department. So once all that is done, then we must maintain and show that we've used that policy for two years, then that portion can be dismissed. So I'm happy to say that uh, we've already had a portion of the settlement agreement dismissed, and we're hoping that by the end of 2026, irregardless of the big picture of all the paragraphs, approximately 56% of this settlement agreement will have been dismissed because we've already met all the requirements of policy, training, implementation, and monitoring it for two years. So that's kind of how the process works. And of course, there's always arguments back and forth of like, what is the best practice and what is the best policy? And for me, I took the stance that I wanted a sustainable process that was going to outlive me. I looked at the mistakes of other agencies I looked at the mistake of previous predecessors at the Albuquerque Police Department, and I saw that everybody was saying yes to practices that were just unsustainable. And the best one was our use of force investigations. We sometimes would lose two officers for up to five, six hours because they simply pushed two hands together to get handcuffs on. And I knew that if this was truly going to be something that became our culture, the way we did business, and that it was going to be beyond the DOJ, which is what is very important to me, that this is sustainable, that we had to push back a little bit and develop a process that would work for Albuquerque. And so this has been going on now for around nine, going on 10 years of reports from the independent monitor, James Ginger. Basically, he's a third party who gathers data and reports it to the court, tracking changes APD is making or has made and writes about it. He's written 18 reports now tracking those changes Use of force has always been a main focus for the monitor because, as we mentioned, the DOJ found evidence to suggest that APD had engaged in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force, including deadly force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. That's from its findings. So how has the department changed its practices specifically centered around use of force? You know, I think the number one thing is creating a culture that doesn't glorify and magnify the use of force. I told you my story, day one, Albuquerque Police Academy. And now the message is, we must preserve life. We must treat people with dignity, with respect, and you will be held accountable. And I think those are key statements for us as leadership to be able to say, and for our people to be coming into the organization and starting their career, knowing that those are fundamental truths, that you must use force when appropriately and only appropriately. And if you do outside of that, you will be held accountable. And I think that starts changing the culture. And I think it's evident in our last year's use of force numbers. I mean, we just released them. 12,000 arrests in 2020. I think it was 700 and some use of forces. 
1,200 arrests in 2023, 400 and some use of forces, 43% reduction. That goes to show how we now value some of the components that have been added on. And you see it every day, officer de-escalating situations. They're improving communications. They're thinking of ways to avoid the use of force. They're doing everything they can to avoid using that force, uh, which is important. So I think that is just one of the biggest pieces of what the process has done for us and what they've changed. But I think there's an unseen component that is just equally as important. And I understand that the use of force, its investigations and us not using as much force are critical for this process. But you guys mentioned it earlier and it's funny, not many people pick up on this. And I give you guys compliments for that. The deterioration of our relationships to the community in 2013 and 14 and how we were at odds with the community. And I think this process has also made us better in developing relationships, number one, with the community, number two, working with the media a whole lot better to get our story out and get information to the community and recognizing that the media is our best avenue to get information out to the community about what we're trying to accomplish. And number three, developing relationships across the board. In 2014, we were really good at working with neighborhood associations and they all came to our defense with the Department of Justice. I don't think anybody here could say, hey, this is our longstanding relationship with these religious organizations, with these ethnic organizations, with these other organizations. And I think our ambassador program, which is above and beyond what the settlement agreement asks for, has really helped us to ensure that, you know, the simple philosophy of there should always be an ear at APD to hear the voices that have never been heard. And we live off that philosophy and it's helped us time and time again uh, during the past couple of years with incidents outside the use of force that are impacting different communities. Quick note, I, I remember in the last couple of years, I think, going to one of those trainings where you guys showed us your new use of force policies and it was very much letting the officers know up front, here's how it works, here's what you're allowed to do, and here's how we're being trained now. And that felt a lot different than it did back 10 years ago. Oh, yes, much a difference. And, you know, we've gotten better at developing curriculum. We actually recognized when I took came back to APD, I had the academy for a brief period of time, and my sister's a teacher. She went to school for four years for it. Instructors go to the academy to an instructor school for two weeks, and all of a sudden, they're going to be the heads of individual training that could result in the loss of human life, which was insane to me. So some of the big things we did is uh, we developed a good partnership with CNM to improve the quality of our trainers. Uh, we brought in a curriculum writer from a university who now writes curriculum. And we brought in a team who is redoing all our curriculum. So we really view training differently now than we did in the past and we've really brought them professional resources to accomplish the training needs that we, that we want to accomplish. It really does sound like responding to use of force is truly feels like more of that, that living, breathing set of policies, that it's something that is constantly under revision. And to that point, I wanted to note last March, you know, you held a news conference. It was following 18 police shootings in 2022. You announced seven areas where APD wanted to improve accountability on use of force, including using more, less than lethal options. So we're talking about like beanbags or sponge rounds, as they call them, mentoring younger officers, adding more equipment, 
making sure officers move in for more immediate medical care. There were a few other areas as well. On that note, do you feel that there have been improvements since then, even since that news conference that you've had? And is it really truly that ever evolving situation where you need to keep assessing how you're using force each year? You know, I think the number one thing, and I hope the media remembers this, and they hold every chief that comes after me accountable to this. This is an always evolving process that should never stop changing. And there will always be ways for improvement, whether it's new initiatives, new resources, new technology. Always be a way for officers to try to reduce the use of force. But the three keys are this, is that you're looking to make changes when you have to. That you're willing to make the changes when you have to. And that you're willing to hold people accountable who aren't changing. And I think that's one of the key things is that press conference and those changes we made was a first big step for us to say, we're going to continually get better. And it's not just in in this aspect of the DOJ stuff. We do it in investigations. Look what's happened to our homicide investigations. We went from a 50% clearance rate to 92 years in a row, one of the highest in the nation. Why? because we're consistently asking and saying, how can we be better? So yes, I think it has gotten better. We just recently reviewed four officer-involved shootings and the DOJ letter spoke about it very interestingly earlier. And I'm glad you reminded me. I'd actually forgotten that most of those individuals in that time frame were not armed. We just did a news conference on how we were involved in four shootings, but all four of those individuals were armed 12 of our 14 were armed with the gun this year and three were armed with edged instruments. That's a lot different than what we saw in 2020. I remember we had shootings, individuals had brake pads. We had a lot of different variety of shootings. An individual was driving away in a car and I think got shot through the roof of the car. So yes, we've seen a lot of changes in the last year. Those four officer-involved shootings Most of them had less lethal deploy and we still struggle with it, but it doesn't stop. We asked for more or less lethal to be used. And now I've identified a trend that's concerning. I think our 40 millimeters aren't as getting the desired effect we want. And now we're looking more towards taser 10 and we're actually looking back. Like we really pushed away from electronic devices like taser from the settlement agreement. And now we're in agreement with DOJ and, and the monitor like, Maybe we need to look to implement them a little more because their technology is advanced and maybe that's going to give us more of the incapacitation that we need in some of these situations to prevent them from turning into officer-involved shootings. So it's not just in the DOJ area, it's across the department. We have to always look to see how we could become better. The next future chief should be held accountable to that. And I do see things that are indicating things are changing. When we talk about the use of force and the settlement agreement, there's also the factor of accountability, like you said, and investigating those use of force instances. There have been some chapters in this over the years, including accusations that APD wasn't doing its due diligence on the follow through investigations into use of force cases. And there was eventually a team called EFIT that you mentioned off the top. That's the external force investigation team brought in to oversee force investigations What do you think of APD's use of force investigations at this point? And are there still challenges or deficiencies? You know, uh, I think there's two things going on back then is we were afraid to hold people accountable because 
a lot of the deputy chiefs had and under the previous leadership, our decisions got reversed. And it kind of leaves a sting that, hey, you're holding people accountable, but you're not being supported from the top. And we also had individuals who didn't know how to conduct these investigations. It was no difference with the force investigators than it was our homicide detectives. Homicides improved because we made changes and we added a detective's academy. EFIT brought a detective's type academy process to our use of force investigators. So that has assisted them in doing a much better job than they were doing in the past. But I'll tell you, it just a lot of it comes down to the willingness to make the right decision and hold people accountable. And when I look back on my three years as chief, I'll be honest, like the most difficult year was the first nine months. Like, I didn't know if I would ever get to where I wanted to be. And I, I was really concerned that I was going to have a run of, you held a lot of people accountable and the cops hated you because they hadn't been held accountable, but our policy was broken. And in holding them accountable, we knew there was going to be massive discipline, but we pushed forward in holding people accountable while Zach Cottrell worked hard to change our disciplinary matrix. And I don't know an officer who didn't get a suspension or wasn't disciplined in some way during those first nine months. But in the end, it brought us credibility from DOJ and an ability to fight back, to push other processes and change them that we felt were wronged and that we had to correct. But it took its toll on the department. And uh, so it's, it's those two things that I think are the utmost importance is we trained our people correctly to do their job and holding people accountable is now institutionalized and it's expected. And I think that's the formula that has gotten us to where we're at in this settlement agreement. I think there's always one interesting point I feel about that is there's always a level of pushback that comes with accountability. Some people will argue, well, you're only making it harder for a police officer to do their job. Good luck ever finding them to fill the ranks. And we know police departments across the country, right? They continue to face vacancy rates. It's not a, just an Albuquerque thing. It is certainly in many other places in the U S but I guess point being, the accountability measure doesn't make it harder to hire police officers. You know what? I think that's what's so special about what we've done in Albuquerque. And if you look nationwide, you find me the police department that's under a consent decree that has lowered the crime rates the way we have in the last couple of years. They're not out there. And we have found a way to create a process for us that works. And I don't look at it as making their job more difficult. I look at it as making them better at their job. That's what we're doing is we're making them better. And the messaging has to be to the community that we're making it better. But I think as we've become more transparent, as we're more honest, we utilize the media more, the media's heard it. I've had to say, yeah, I wish we'd have done that better. Like there is no excuses. I'm very open. I do a round with all the media outlets once a year just to have a, a, just a conversation, off the record conversation for all of us. I think that has led us to better credibility in the community and that has been the key to recruiting, not the fact that we hold our officers accountable. And I'm happy to say last year, we started our biggest class in almost a decade. We started 63 cadets in the late summer of last year. Yesterday, I welcomed 56 new cadets to the Albuquerque Police Department that started yesterday. So you see, we have two massive classes coming through. And I think it comes down to the fact that we look professional. We portray ourselves that way in the media. People know that 
it's a proud place to be employed at, and it has a lot of honor and integrity, and I think it's attracting individuals to our department, and we're outpacing every police department. So, yes, give everybody else raises. Of course, I'll go advocate for my people to get raises, but in the end, I think that the way we've learned to be transparent and work with the community only assists us in our recruiting, and we can't focus on the other parts, and if we did, it would hurt us. So to recap again, a lot of chapters of reform, I think around 250 to 300 different line item points, paragraphs written into the um, settlement agreement. Then there's those three levels of compliance. Simply put, Chief, where is APD in terms of the settlement agreement and reform effort right now? You know, and I want to be very clear, I was a little taken back in court. And I, I was, I'm frustrated because I do not want the next chief to have to deal with this. I will feel I failed if I don't clear this for the next chief. Like I want to be there to say this is done. And when the next chief comes, and I hope it's somebody from within my ranks, and I hope it's somebody I've mentored and groomed, and I hope I could sit there and tell them, you don't have that to worry about. Just remember what I taught you. We always have to be evolving and change and don't be afraid to say we made a mistake. But this is the truth. There's 255 measurable paragraphs that Albuquerque Police Department is responsible for. We're in compliance in 252. This settlement agreement alone says we have to hit 95% as a kind of benchmark. We're at 98.8% of our paragraphs. Why aren't we in compliance? They criticized us over one use of force and one case that the FRB heard. FRB heard 125 cases. I think it was 125 or 115. They're questioning us about one case. That's a 99.3 or 99.4% rate of compliance. One case. Use of force is down 43% as opposed to a same time frame with the exact same number of arrests, which is impressive because some agencies go down in use of force during settlement agreements It's because arrests went down. Our public support, I feel, is higher than ever, and it's evident by the fact that we're recruiting more and more individuals to join the department, both professional and sworn from within the Albuquerque community. So that's where the Albuquerque Police Department is, is we're anxiously awaiting them to deem us in compliance and then us making sure that we stay on top of it and for the two-year mark continue to make changes and modify what we need to to stay in compliance. But above all, at the end of that two-year period, I hope that the leadership sitting here remembers they have to stay active and always make changes. And if not, on my way out the door, I will remind the media over and over again, hold the chief accountable to change. Hold the chief accountable to making the changes that keep this department going forward. Hold the chief accountable to transparency. And I've tried to be as transparent as possible. And you talked about a little bit earlier, I still remember two incidents in my mind when we first said an officer had been involved in a shooting faster than we ever had and how everybody was upset with me. They're like, I can't believe the deputy chief did that. It was a shooting on Eubank. I told Gilbert, did we fire shots? And he said, yes. And we always waited till after the briefing. I said, if we fired shots, you tweet it right now and put out a statement. It became standard practice. And now everybody, it's an expectation and We've gotten rid of those whole three, four hours of, is it a shooting? Is it not a shooting? The next thing was a shooting at Quail and Coors. 
And I said, is there a gun on scene? And they said, yes. I said, I'm going to say there is what appeared to be a firearm on scene. Everybody about died in investigations. Oh my God, chief, you can't say that. Now it's standard. Everybody's looking for it and everybody's ready to say, chief, there's a gun. You can say what appears to be a gun on scene. It's the change of culture. And that exemplifies how I can say, I can see culture has changed in a lot of different ways. And that's just one example of, especially with the transparency and the honesty to the community. Chief, you've been with APD for a long time. We kind of went over, you were looking at retirement in 2014. So I'm assuming you'd like to retire soon, question mark. You touched on this at the last court hearing and expressed some frustration that it might be another chief's matter to finish out this process in the coming years. But when do you think the day will come when APD can move on from this process? And why do you think it's so important for you to be at the helm when that day happens? I want a clean handoff above all. Like I've put uh, three deputy chiefs through the chief's developmental program through major city chiefs. And it just isn't a chief's developmental program. It's a network building program for them. They go to class with 25 other potential chief candidates from across the country and their relationships I still use to this day. When I have situations that I want an outside opinion on, I don't want to leave them with the burden of the settlement agreement. And I want them to have a clean start. I think APD deserves a clean start with the, with a new chief at some point in time that didn't have to go through all this and they build upon the future. For me, I've always said, you know, at the end of this administration, it may be time for me to go away. But I'll tell you, if this settlement agreement isn't resolved and I had to postpone this six months a year, my wife will choke me because <laughs> I think people forget the, the other side of this is like the home life side. Like there's very few dinners. There's not very few, but there's an extensive amount of dinner and family time that get inter interrupted by the phone. And my wife's ready. She's like, at a certain point, it's time for you to go on. But I'll stay as long as I'm able to stay to see this process through because I just don't want the next chief to have to deal with it. We touched on culture a little bit throughout this conversation. And culture is and forever will be a huge matter in terms of the operation of this police department and the community it serves. And I wanted to ask you, has the culture changed? How do you assess that? You know, unfortunately, there's no formula I could put in that says the culture changed. But I look at key things. I look at, and I just gave two examples of like how we're more transparent and now everybody's ready for like, chief, we need to get you video so we could release this information. That shows a change in culture, a reduction in the use of force. When I see officers uncuffing people and trying to calm them down and speaking, a little frustrating at times because Sometimes they'll speak to them an hour or like, God, at a certain point, you got to get the job done. But they'll speak with them just to avoid the use of force. That's culture change. When you see an academy that doesn't sit there and on day one, they talk about the glorification of use of force. That's culture change. When you see that we have an ambassador program that when we had four horrific homicides in the Muslim community, that by nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, our community relationships had officers everywhere we needed them. That's culture change. So I think there's been a lot of different ways. You know, and I, I try to be as transparent and open and available chief as possible. And that's culture change. And everybody below me is seen chief is open, transparent. But they also seen chief will push back when he has to. And chief's not afraid if he's going to get in trouble because he said something. So 
I think all these things are signs of culture change, and I hope that it will continue. But I, like I said, I hope everybody understands it will always and should always be evolving. You never know when the next issue is going to hit APD. How many times has overtime hit us? I mean, we've done everything we can. We address it over and over, and then overtime comes up all over again. There will always be issues within APD, and it goes back to those three things. Are you willing to identify it? Are you willing to change it? And are you willing to hold those accountable? And an easy difference to note that I noticed is just how much more we all lean into technology in the last few years. I know it's been a big factor in solving more cases for APD, right? But for you, Chief, is there an accomplishment that you're most proud of when it comes to APD and the reform process? You know, the thing that I'm more, most proud of is that our officers have changed. And I see how they're comfortable doing their job again. Like we did this reform process our way. Let's face it, me and the mayor pushed back quite a bit on the monitor and DOJ at times and said, we got to make this work for Albuquerque. And I started a process like every month, 20 individuals are randomly chosen to come have breakfast with me. And the officers go around the room and we talk about one positive about APD and one negative and a little bit about personally everybody and what their lives are and what their, you know, what their dynamics are, their life and their hobbies. When I first took over as chief, you went around that room and officers hated this program process. They just talked about how they couldn't do their job, how they couldn't get involved in the use of force. Like this process was all negative. And now three years later to sit in that breakfast and officers' biggest complaints be, I wish we had more officers. And one of the positives being you've fixed the use of force process and we could work with this. That is the thing I'm proud of more is because that shows our people have embraced this. They believe in it and it shows where we were as a department and the struggles we had and we weren't perfect. And I tell the officers, don't be afraid to say what's bad because I know I was here in 2020. I know it sucked. It just did. And now today it's a whole lot better place. One thing I think I'll always remember about the reform process and when we go back to, I think when I moved here in in April 2013, as this all was sort of starting up, the department had on a lot of its older cars, those white ones with the blue and red lettering, there was that phrase written on those cars, in step with our community. And at the time, I, I think it was pretty clear the feds disagreed, many others in the community disagreed. And there's been a lot of shifts, though, over that last decade that APD has made. So with that in mind, what is your metric today that the city is served with a department that is truly in step with the community? You know, I think above all, we have to be able to say that we're there for everybody within the community. And I think APD was really good at being there for the people who supported us. And I still remember my first day as chief. Uh, it was a Saturday. I was sitting at home. I called Intel and I had just gone through, I think it was 68 protests. And that was a big time for us as a department. I remember being at the Academy one Saturday and I told all the officers, how many of you are in trouble at home for being here again today? And everybody kind of put their head down and I raised their hand and I said, my wife was so upset because I was leaving again. I was like, my wife is tired of this. And the hands started to all go up and I recognized we were going to break if we couldn't fix relationships and I made a difficult, it wasn't even a difficult, I made a difficult phone call because there was no relationship. But 
I had them get me the phone number to the person I heard at the most protests, Hey Barry. And I called him and I set up dinner for me, him, and Torrance Green. And as we had that dinner and we realized we could work together, I realized that this was change. And that ability to work with the community is going to be the biggest key for us because it wasn't overnight that all these people went to odds with APD that protested us. And I remember that protest in 2014. I I just remember watching it on TV. I put on my uniform. I went help my area command and I took calls with them because all the officers had been pulled downtown. We can never let things get to that point again. And we got to do everything we can to maintain those relationships with the community. And to me, that is the number one key. Chief, we grilled you on a lot over over the last decade of the department. Is there anything else we're missing that you want to add or want the public to understand? Our officers work hard each and every day, and they're not perfect. And I think that we always have to remember that one of the biggest changes we've had in policy is a mistake versus misconduct. And officers are going to make mistakes. And I hope that the public remembers that as long as we have the human element, mistakes are going to be made. People are going to get emotional. But as long as we hold people accountable, and sometimes those individuals, it may be bad enough for them to lose their job, and several officers have had, that we're in a good place. But we always have to maintain that communication. And in the end, I hate to say this for my, you know, for the future chiefs, the chief has to be held accountable for the direction. The moment the chief is no longer listening to the community and recognizing that changes have to be made is uh, maybe it's time they need to look within themselves to see if they're still the right person for this job because there are still a lot of changes that I have to make and things I want to improve upon. And I hope that the next person is willing to say that we need to be better and make those changes. Chief Medina, thank you so much for your time. Nope, thank you guys. Again, a big thanks to APD Chief Harold Medina. We appreciate that conversation. For me, I know this is one I've been looking forward to in terms of getting to have that extended discussion about what those reform efforts are. Because again, you know, this is a really complicated subject and there is a lot of background that really needs to go into it. So we appreciate the chief for taking his time to speak with us at length about that. And we will also Post a lot of links to our DOJ coverage in the past, some of the stories that we referred to in this conversation. And this is something we'll continue to keep an eye on, the progress of the DOJ reform efforts, and as well that federal investigation that we mentioned off the top. So stay tuned online and on air. And if you have any ideas or someone you'd like to hear from on our podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at Chris McKee TV, also Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. Thanks for listening.